This episode of the Sports Initiative podcast is brought to you by Scoop. Here's Pippa to tell you more. Hi, my name's Pippa. I'm co-founder of a new sports nutrition startup, and I'm here to tell you about my company, Scoop. Scoop is a new sports nutrition brand in compostable pods. Over the last 18 months, we've developed the first pod-based nutrition shaker that allows you to make an easy, mess-free fitness shake in three simple steps. Pop it, shake it, drink it. Scoop's unique system offers many benefits. You can change flavors and supplement whenever you want. It's fast, easy and mess-free to prepare. Our pods are easily transportable so you can take them on the go and it's 100% compostable. Our first blend, the Workout Whey, is a whey isolate protein drink made from only natural ingredients and is available in three delicious flavors. Want to try Scoop? You're in luck. On the 22nd of June at 1pm, we're launching Scoop via Kickstarter. By supporting Scoop on Kickstarter, you can save up to 45% on your order and will help us make Scoop a reality. Follow us on Instagram at scoop underscore en and for more information, check out www.scoopnutrition.es. Thanks. Make sure you check out our social media for more information and links to how you can get this product. On this week's episode, we sit down with Greg Mannion, the Junior Academy Manager at Leicester Tigers. He discusses the challenges in late player identification, how they encourage individuals to take ownership of their own player development and what this looks like when they return to their own clubs, and the risk-reward factor during skillful acts such as offloads. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family as we continuously look to grow. I hope you enjoy. Cool. So, Greg, uh, first of all, thanks for spending a bit of your, your Tuesday morning with me. How are you? Are you all safe and well? Yeah, uh, good to meet you, Michael. And thanks for, for inviting me on. Yeah, I'm all, all good. Um, having some time at home at the moment, working from home back in Wigan. So, uh, really nice to spend some time with my family and my, my kids. So, uh, other than that, all, all good and, and looking forward to going back to work at some point, but don't tell the wife that. <laughs> Yeah, I think everyone, uh, although it is nice to spend a bit of time at home, I think everyone's looking forward to getting back in the office and stuff now. So uh, I'm sure she won't blame me on that front. So um, obviously I reached out to you on social media and just saw some of the work that you were doing and some of your experiences I thought would really be interesting. Um, for people that maybe haven't come across you, do you just want to explain kind of um, a little bit around your background and then what, what your current role is and what that entails from a kind of day-to-day, week-to-week basis? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm, I'm a, a qualified teacher by by trade. Uh, so I was at university and did my what was a, a known as a key stage two three transition course. So basically, I had to do all the primary school education, uh, and I bolted that on with a secondary PE delivery. Um, so once qualified, I then was fortunate enough to go and work in in a good school in Wigan, which was my old high school, and then I moved into a school in Manchester where. Uh, very different from my my previous school, but uh, yeah, really good learning curve. Re- really opened my eyes up to to probably what was going on outside of of my own little bubble and and, and what the world actually looks like. Um, so that that was really good and, and an eye opener for me. Um, and and on the back of that, I was I was there to help try and 
deliver rugby. So being a, a Wigan lad, obviously I uh, was born and raised on rugby league, uh, following the the great Wigan's team of the of the the nineties for my age. Um, and I was fortunate enough when I was younger, I played a bit of rugby as well. So I was a, a, an academy product for for Wigan, uh, and then moved to the arch rivals St Helens and, and had a couple of seasons at St Helens. Um, and you know, in all fairness, it's only taken me fifteen years to admit it, but I was never good enough. Um, and although I never saw it, everyone else did, and, and you know, it, but I didn't I didn't lose that passion for rugby. So uh, in the teaching side, I was always doing my my, my rugby league coaching with either local community teams or school teams. Um, so that, that's kind of where I, I started and where I started to pick up some of my coaching. Um, and what then happened was when I was at my, my last school in Manchester, unfortunately, redundancies were coming. And when you get put through the redundancy scenario, I, I looked at what the, the criterias were. And, and in a nutshell, it was, it was probably going to be me or one other. So I took a leap of faith and chatted with the wife and said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my redundancy and I'm going to go and make sure it's all on my terms, and I, I, I'll find a job and work 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 work, work as hard as I can and look after the family. Um, and as I did that, you just didn't know what was going to come, and and it was really hard to then for me to get another teaching job at the time. I was quite well experienced, but but not well not not good enough to go into the, the head of departments or second departments. And a, a rugby league job came up in Loughborough. Um, so I applied for that with the, the wife's consent to try and move away from home for a small period of time. And the the, the rugby league job was fantastic. Working, uh, it was based at Loughborough College, but it was running a rugby league program called the Midlands Hurricanes. And um, I had two great years doing it. I had a fantastic time working with some really good lads and loads of fantastic volunteers. And then off the back of that, Leicester Tigers asked, was I interested in working for them? Um, and that was a shock because I'd never really looked at rugby union. Again, in the area I was, it was very much rugby league only. So, um, weighed it up, had a couple of chats with some some people's opinions who I, I have high respect for. And yeah, I took a, a, at the time another leap of faith to move into rugby union. Um, and to be totally honest with you, I've, I've, I've never really looked back. It's been fantastic. Um, they've looked after me so well. And and since I've been there, I've, I've gone from being on the ground and working on the DPP and supporting the coaches to uh, being the junior academy manager where I look after the DPP itself, so the 14 to 16 pathway, um, making sure we have a, a strong, vibrant system which allows us to to recruit the best potential players. And and alongside of that, I then do coaching with, with Brooksby, which is what's known as the ACE programme. So that's our official college uh, BTEC provider. Um, so I do the, the delivery there, the, the lead coach for them. Um, and I also assist and help out with the academy as well. So... So quite a varied role. Um, I've had lots of other intricate roles in between all of that. So I was a, an England colleges head coach. Um, I've been the academy coach, uh, like development officer. So I do some of the coach mentoring. Uh, I do some mentoring back in Wigan with some local coaches. So um, yeah, that, that's kind of me and, and a little little bit of how I've got to where I am. I know you said a nutshell. I've, I've probably gone on a bit longer there. But... No, that's fine. I think it's highlighted lots of different um, areas and things to discuss, which is great. So I think if we start from kind of where you are now, so obviously you mentioned about the DPP, which is obviously development player pathway, etc. So what does that look like for, for Leicester Tigers? What does that pathway through to... I guess the the first team look like and how and then 
ideal context do players make that transition all the way through with the club? Yeah, so the 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 DPP or the, yeah the developing player project, uh, program is is we we've we've identified it as a, a, an area for opportunity. So it's an area for players to have an opportunity to develop themselves. So it's not something we we technically say is is for the elite players in the region. But what we say is it's for the the players who need that extra challenge and support. And the reason why we're like that is because actually we, we work with a large base of players. So we run via four centres based in our regions. Now, our regions are given to us via the RFU, just for that little background. So, so the RFU give us our areas where we can we can recruit players from. So what we have is we have a centre in each one. Um, each one roughly holds around about, uh, probably about 150 kids in, in that, at the ages of 14, 15 and 16. Um, and throughout the year, we provide a number of, of sessions um, and opportunities for lads to train. Um, and within the under 14, they might get one playing or festival or opportunity where they'll play inter region, so region against region. But under 15s, you'll get two inter regional opportunities. And then there's potential for a summer camp for a, for a small a smaller number of players. Uh, under 16s, it's very much the same scenario, other than when we get to to the, the after Christmas period, we try to reduce our, our group down. It goes roughly from around about 120 to 40. And then that 40 then usually gets a little bit smaller as it, it's then picked into an academy group. Um, so that's that's roughly what our DPP looks like. Obviously, it's ever-changing, ever-evolving as we, we're constantly analysing and assessing what we do and how we go about it. In terms of the the player pathway as well and the journey a player goes through it's quite varied and it's very very individualized so it depends on the player so we can we can identify players who started at 14 and actually are currently first team in England internationals and have gone all the way through the program and the system but at the same time we can identify players who came in at 14 left at 16 came back in at 17 18 and in fact, are actually potential first team players at other Premiership clubs or backing at Leicester Tigers. Um, we've got lads who've actually bypassed the 14 to 16 program. We picked them up at the the very end of the 16s, playing county rugby for the for the region, um, and they then come into our system. So it, it's all very individualised, and we we try and make sure it's just that it's just a, a strong breadth of study, so that they un, they understand all the the challenges and the different skills and the different ways of coaching and, and developing players. And, and, then, and then we're looking at how the players themselves take the information and develop. And then and that's where we try and start with our DPP. And so do you guys have like a traditional, I guess, football academy that works alongside it? Or is that your base in terms of you don't have a traditional academy, you have these development centres and then obviously they feed in, I guess, at the older age groups when they go start going to college and all that type of stuff? Yeah, so yeah, so we don't have a we don't have anything that runs alongside. There's not like a, a gold group and a silver group or a, a a specific group. It is an open an open environment where you know we we we'll start with our base as broad as we can. We'll provide opportunities for entry and re-entry and 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 uh, almost like a re reevaluation sort of where they're at and how we can support players. Sometimes we'll ask players to to leave at certain parts of the the program because we feel that 
the challenge is not right for them or, or it's it, it's just not the right level at the moment. And then there are times when we'll bring players in and we'll, and we'll try and consider how we challenge them further in order to get more out of those players. It's only when they reach into the academy that we have more of a what would be seen as a traditional academy programme. But but even then in rugby union terms, it's it's still quite limited access. So so like within a football academy, I imagine you'll be seeing your players five five times a week. Whereas, yeah, something around that, yeah. Yeah, whereas, you know, other than pre-season, when they're, when they're going to the schools and the colleges, we'll see them twice a week. So we'll only see them twice a week and we put a lot of faith and trust in our, our schools, programmes and partners that we have. Okay, so that's brought up loads of questions. I'm going to try and order this that I think's best. So if we're looking at, um, obviously, you're aiding players with that transition. If they're jumping in and out, so you, at times you're going to have to have awkward conversations with lads and say, obviously, the challenge isn't right. How do you go about framing those conversations where there isn't resentment off the back of it? Because I could imagine, and I'm talking from a football context and I can talk from a personal context, if you get released from somewhere, there is a certain level of resentment at that period of time against that club. So how do you manage that conversation where actually they are comfortable with saying, we know what, I'm not currently in the pathway at 15s, but I want to work so I could get an opportunity at 17 rather than just going, oh, I'm never going back to them. That's terrible. Yeah, so it it, it comes back to... Um... It comes back to something I heard Sean Wayne, who's the, the current England Rugby League head coach, talk about. And it's something I've kind of always felt was, was the case as well, is that selection and deselection should never really be a shock. If it's a shock to to the player, then we've, we've got something wrong in our system because perception and reality are, are nowhere near one another. So, so we try and encourage that there's a constant honesty in what we're doing in terms of where players are at and how they're getting on and we try to encourage those those micro chats around the side of the pitch or with players and and really try and give them an understanding of where they are in the, in the grand scheme now there'll, there'll still be moments where players can be resentful to, to the information they're getting because again it, it's not what they want to hear um and, and again it goes into that honesty so it, it's making sure that our feedback is honest and credible and it's making sure that the information we're providing them and sharing with them is is relevant to the development. So if we were to, say, release a player from the system, it's not a case of, thanks very much, we're not keeping you off you go. It's actually, you know, these are the reasons what we see at the moment. This is what we're looking at in terms of where we think you need to be next time. We've got local scouts and people in the area who can come and watch. We have contact with the coaches who can update us on your development. When we have our open opportunities and our days of, of, of assessment, you know, we don't expect you to be brought back into the assessment so we can have a look at where you are. You know, um, we use examples of players who've come in and out to show that actually it's not just words. It's actually there's some, there's some evidence behind players who have done the same sort of journeys. Is there uh, any high-profile examples of that? Uh, you've asked me now. I'd have to, I knew this question would be asked. So, who's the high profile of, of uh, end of that? So, um, at the moment, we've just promoted a kid into into the DPP. No, sorry, into the academy. Who he was one of the players who actually missed the whole DPP and was picked up by playing county. And because he was playing county, he was quite successful. Um, and he's just been given an opportunity to be a first team player. Um, we have a lad who 
um, has just signed at Sale. And what happened was he was in the pathway at 14 to 16, but didn't get taken into the academy. Went to the Brooksby Melton College programme and was actually brought back in in his second year of college. Played the year of academy um, and was played very well and was in contention for a potential uh, opportunity to be a first-team player, but just missed out for, for, for whatever reasons the club decided. Um, and now he's gone to university and he's playing at Sale. So... You know, there are players in, in the environment who do that. Um, there have been players in, in the past who have either now moved on from the club but were, were those in-and-out players. Um, but, yeah, we, we have got them players in the pathway in the system. OK, so sorry, I interrupted you there. So, yeah, as you say, it's kind of not being a shock for the, for the lads and then giving them previous um, that. Do you, are you able to provide them with any, like, tangible support when they're away? Or is that kind of left down to them and, and the clubs that they're that they're working with? Yeah, so that, that that's one of the harder ones because if you think of the the number of players in the pathway, we only and we only get given a set number of hours via the RFU. So so because you can, because of that, you don't have as much time as you'd like. So what we have to try and do is provide the players with as much as we can, and to kind of combat that, well, we try and get the coaches to be involved and ask questions about what our pathway is so we try and provide cpd for the coaches in the area which which gives them insights to what we do we try and encourage them to be at training sessions when they're when they're free and they've got the time to do and i know volunteer coaches find that tougher um but we try and we're trying to be as open and transparent as we can because yeah if players go back into the local club it's quite hard for us to be able to to give them real real support so we have to then put our trust and faith in the player and the people around them to support them effectively no that, that makes complete sense so i guess the next question this brings me on to is when you're um looking at a leicester tigers team or someone within your pathway what what is kind of your way what do you want your players to be able to do i appreciate this is particularly difficult in rugby because what you expect your fullback or scrum after do is very different to what you want your hooker or prop to do but is there kind of a base skill set or base non-negotiables that you have for players within your pathway? Uh, so it's re really interesting because the the variants that you can look into for what makes a a future player are so so vast in 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 our in our environment, and that that's not that's not a cop out to your question, um, but the, there is. I presented before on some player identification um, CPDs, and and I, the first thing I always start with is like, and it's the big question rugby is, is it's a genetic thing, and you can be labelled with you only pick the biggest and fastest kids that you can find, and 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 whilst whilst I'll refute that, we that's not exactly what we do. You have to be realistic at the same time and understand all that. If a kid is showing signs of being six foot seven, six foot eight, we can't coach anybody to be that tall. So there is an advantage to being genetically tall or genetically wide where you can carry a large amount of weight to then potentially be a front rower. If if you can run the hundred meters in your region as a as a 15, 16 year old quicker than anybody else in, in your region, then there's an there's an element that we can't coach that sort of pace we can work on running techniques and all that but so so you can't disclaim a genetical thing but but where we have to load our data and our understanding of identification is that 
or there's a load of other components what come with that. So we'll have a look into the quartile rates and figure out, you know, where are they born within the year and what, what impact does that have on the player? Um, we'll have a look at what the background data is of the player who we're looking at in terms of, has he played club rugby since he was four? Does he come from a sporting family? Is he an only child? Is he the youngest of his family or is he the oldest of his family? Because they'll play impacts in terms of what we see. Um, understanding the social standings within, within the sessions. So does he command the sessions because socially he's more accepted than, than others? And is that because he's one of, say, seven kids from the same team? Or is he a, a player from a completely isolated team and he's the only player and then all of a sudden that gives you a different perspective on the individual and then we start to fall in the lines of some psychological stuff as well though um but we're also assessing the the the, the general skills of course we're looking for lads who can catch and pass who can tackle who can make decisions and sometimes we're not we're not concerned about the outcome of the decision but actually can they make decisions so can they put themselves into uncomfortable places and try to make some effective outcomes by by what they see and what they do? And if they don't always come off, we're, we're to a point we're happy with that as long as they are learning and showing signs of development from that situation. Um, so it, I, I, I find it, it's, quite a, it's quite a large spectrum that we have to really be aware of. And I suppose, like every team, you want coachable kids you want, you want kids who are going to be open to suggestions and ideas, but you also want you also want players who will come back at you and will challenge what you say. You don't just want the yes kids. You want the, the players who go, I understand that, but why? Or I can see this instead. Is that a bad thing? Or, but what happens if this happens? You want those players who challenge you and you can challenge them rather than the player who either just says yes or nods, but then goes off and does whatever he's been doing anyway. So, so you know, it, yeah, it, it's quite a it's quite a difficult area of identification that we find, or that I find personally within rugby. But but we have lots of information to try and support what we what we make our decisions based on. Yeah, and I, I guess uh, what this leads to is challenging for you guys. Like fly halves are very different in their style of play you even look at the top level like you get some that are very pragmatic that actually i know they hate the term but are very good game managers so they understand when to turn the defense round and you know look to play for uh play for line outs and scrums all that type of stuff you have others that are way more expansive and look to you know try and entice defenders in to play through gaps how does that factor into your identification process? Because I can imagine kind of at the top level, if I, if I look at this in a football context, at the top level, you know, it'd be very easy for a football team to go, okay, we're, we're all going to play like Pep and do like that. But if Pep gets sacked two months from now and a different coach comes in, you have to realign your academies. So within football academies, for the most part, not always, but they try and stick to like a blueprint of going, this is kind of what we want our players to be able to do. How does that look in rugby? Do you have that pathway as well? We go, you know, we want our fly halves to be able to, you know, kick long distance or be able to deal with contact. Do you have any factors around that? Um, not, not necessarily. Again, there's a, it's an, players will be taken on an individual basis. So if we use the fly half example, if we've got, one player who's very forward-thinking and attack-minded compared to a player who's much more game management and and almost 
possession-based in terms of how they play, then um, what we're looking for is, is again, how they, them players react to challenge, how those players can, can adapt or, or vary what they do on the pitch. So a game-based player will still need to go and attack the line and be aggressive at the line. So as a, as a bias with my, my backs cap on, I want players who will play at the line and I want fly halves who will, who will take the ball forward and be prepared to be hit. But knowing that actually by doing that, he's, he's pulling players out of, of positions and, and allowing his teammates to go through. Um, but we'll, we want to see the players challenge and can they react to that? If we've got the, the player who's much more attack focused, we'll set challenges in terms of can he see space to kick or does he have the ability to control his players on his left and right and be able to organise them? Because we know in the future that not every game he's going to be able to play exactly how he wants to. So we'll take every player on an individual basis as much as we can and we'll set them the challenges and the parameters to, to challenge their skill sets. And that's then when we start to identify who the potential fly half is to take through. And, it, and if both of, and in, in both in this instance were, were just as strong and effective and adapted well, then we take them through because, like you said yourself, we don't know what, what the future of the game looks like, but we know that we've got two very credible fly halves who can offer us two various games, and we know that they can be added to in terms of their, uh, their skill set. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, I guess around the identification side, being at that 14s age group, you know, that's where you begin to see some people that got a long beard like mine and get a deep voice and other kids that maybe still haven't quite gone through puberty yet and still got a squeaky voice and all that type of stuff. And obviously that's going to bring, I guess, challenges in terms of the physical capabilities of those players, but also for, for yourselves, a challenge of, to an nth, predicting the future of going, well, you know, this player is able to run through him now, but will he be able to six months, a year, two years from now? So how do you manage that identification process around that kind of quartile factor, that bio-banding, early maturation factor type type stuff? Yeah, so so you're always looking for you're always looking for resilience and you're always looking for for players who and again I I'll say I can repeat myself at times, but you're looking for players who can adapt to what they do. And you're looking for players who can also stick it out when, when the outcomes are not what they want. And sometimes that can be the same player. So sometimes that can be your, your early maturing, your physically big, your quartile one kid, which is stereotypically what, what we think when we say that. So, yeah, but, at, but at the same time, it could be your, your, your stereotypical Q4, bottom end of the scale, low maturation. So, so you know, it, if we take our, our stereotypical small kid we're looking for the player who can still put himself in positions to try and have impact on the game who doesn't take being knocked down or backwards or, or have a setback who doesn't take that personal apart from the fact that he wants to try and do it again and all of a sudden you see little nuggets like that and you know that there's there's something in there and, and as a program then we have to we have to figure out how long does that enable you to to keep them in a system to, to monitor what they do if it's the opposite way, then again, it's. I've got no issue in watching a big kid run over somebody or, or smash them in a tackle because that's the game and, and, and lads have got to be able to do that. But, but once you've done it once or twice, I don't need to see that kid do it to, this, to the same opposition every session. What I need to then see him is actually, 
well, can he use his footwork to avoid front-on collisions and find what we call soft shoulders? Or can he start to develop his catch-and-pass game so that as he goes at the line, can he play players through the hole because players are sucked into him because of the pure size? And, and that's where sometimes we get some of our, our further discussions and, and our identification takes a, a really interesting conversation because the, 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 it's the small things you sometimes don't see which is what potentially makes the, the, the bigger impact for the player. So can he tip at the line and play? Or can he move the ball well? Or can he impact the game without physically touching the ball because he's six foot three and he's, he's early maturing? Or is he, is he a small diminutive player, but he, he's getting himself involved? He, he's, he's putting himself in, in front of players who are clearly going to be physically dominant, but he makes his efforts. If he makes his tackles fantastic. If he doesn't make his tackle and his techniques way off, then, you know, we have to be mindful of that. But actually, if he's putting himself in some good positions but just can't physically match it, that's not a bad thing. And that, that that's kind of going with them scale. Now, where we were trying to get something into our into our system and our DP last year, but obviously it didn't happen because of COVID, but we were also looking at a little bit of vertical learning. Now, I'm sure you'll you listen to me. Like vertical learning is where we kind of partner up our 14s, 15s and 16s into one-off sessions. And the idea was going to be every every few weeks, probably three weeks, we'd have, we'd have probably looked at a vertical learning session. That was the plan I was kind of getting in place. And that, that was to go more of a technical style session, but it was to then challenge some of those perceptions. So if you are a, a, your big kid in your under 15s, but we see potential. What happens when you step into the big kids of the under sixteens, or or the lesser of the under sixteens? Are you are you better than what's ahead of you, or, or are you are you at the bottom of that 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 level at that moment? And then psychologically, how do you handle going from being able to run through everybody to then going against lads who can match you physically? And what what does that do to then how you train, how you perform, how you reflect on your own performance, and things like that? So. I was really looking forward to seeing how we get that in, but, but, but COVID's not allowed us to, to fully explore that yet. So um, potentially that's what might happen next year. Yeah, no, I think, you know, pl playing that across age groups and stuff is really interesting. I know we, we do a lot of work around just um, doing years of birth. When we play on the continent, they often go year of birth, so 2009 born. So all of a sudden you take your Q1s out of the picture. So then it's a completely different ball game. And what you generally find is that um, the foreign teams have a load of Q1s on, of the year. So if it's 2009 born, they'll have January, February, March. Yeah. And we end up with a lot of September, October, November's right at the end. And you see the physical mismatch and the other way around, which is which is interesting. Looping back to one thing that you, you mentioned earlier around kind of developing players individually. How do you go around developing those skills? Say it is a big lad, but it's still being position relative. So I'd imagine like you, you can say if you've got a lad who's going to be six foot seven, we think or he's going to, you know, he's going to be a big and he's going to be a second row. You still want to give him exposure to being in the scrum, etc. But if you're working for him to get more opportunities of offloads and all that type of stuff, it might be technically better for him to play inside centre where he's going to get a lot of the ball and is going to have that opportunity. So how do you go around managing that transition and individualised approach for the players? Yeah, so 
we actually don't have a big position specific focus within the DPP. Um, it comes as we get to under 16s, latter end of 15s into under 16s, when we'll start to introduce some, some what we'll call unit sessions where they'll start to learn some scrum postures, some lifting techniques, especially in the forwards, because obviously the set piece is key in the game. Uh, the backs will have a little bit more home in focus on some kicking techniques and some some lines of running and, and, and some manipulation of defenders. But but actually throughout the DVP it's quite a it's quite a broad uh, skill curriculum. Uh, which is is often delivered through these like the style of games and breakouts. So I have no issue. We will do drills at times with players because it, it sometimes can be relevant and it can work for what we need. But we'll also have lots of games in what we're doing as well. Um, and you'll have those those in between. So at the moment, I'm looking at an idea about short, medium and long sessions. So shorts being like 1v1s or one-on-ones or some, some very simple technical, well, not simple, but te- some technical delivery. That medium bit is where you build up on your games. You might have more 6v6s, 5v5s, so, you know, your small-sided games. And then we go along where we're looking at more bigger picture stuff and and, and, and larger numbers against each other on, on the ideas of that. Now, our sessions at DPP are very much like that. So, so we've got a, a fantastic group of volunteer coaches who, you know, we, we give them a curriculum of what we're looking at and the skills we want to develop. And, and, and we give them a curriculum over the year. And then we ask the, the coaches to deliver the sessions how they feel best suits on that. So we have some variability in the delivery, um, but it's all within a, a, a theme or an objective that's set out by us as a club. Um, and, and the sessions very much have that opportunity for players to put themselves into the variety of positions rather than it being a, this is a, a an opportunity for you to be the only nine and you to be the only ten and you're this position and you're that position. Actually, it's this is the game. So, like as an example, like I like to play a four-channel game. So you can only have one phase per channel consecutively. So you've got four areas, four areas of the pitch. You can move the ball as much or as little as you want, but you've got to stay out of the channel you've previously been in. Well. Sometimes the nines and tens who are nines and tens at club will take ownership of that and try and dominate that. But then, then you add in like a two pass rule, and all of a sudden, then he's got the the tens got to pass the ball, or or the player at first receiver. I would like to say that he, he has to then pass the ball to somebody else, and that somebody else could be a front row, it could be a second, it could be anybody in the club position. But in the game, it just means you then have to have a second receiver. So the language is not necessarily based on. This is the nines and tens. It's just it's a two pass game or it's a, a four channel game, um, but it re- relates back to the fact that this session's all about catch and pass. Does that make? That make yeah, sense? no, that makes complete sense. I, I think it's really interesting. So I I would have thought that that would have been really late to make that transition into into positions. Um, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts on that is. Um, well, it, again, and. and uh, it's interesting. So, like, one of the most high-profile that I'm aware of, anyway, in, in transitions is is club captain Tom Youngs came through the program and the system as a centre, but but has become a British and Irish lion as a hooker. So, so, and he, I, th- I think he must have changed positions. It must have been must have been going into his his, his start of his professional career at Tigers. It weren't in an academy when he changed position. Now. 
that that's one example and i'm very aware that for every one example like that you might have five examples of lads who were front rowers and are front rowers and stayed front rowers and then and again there are, there are some positions that we know were it's very obvious where you're going to be there's very rarely going to be a six foot eight like other than fred stewart but very rarely they're going to end up being second rowers so so there are, there are and your front rowers you can carry weight and can be your powerful players it, it, it tends to suit the body size because that tends to be part of the process but actually within the rest of the positions there's quite a bit of fluidity fluidity where they could move and and, and it's not necessarily set in stone the, the other thing to consider as well is is that when you watch club rugby and I, I i could probably i couldn't say it for everything because i don't watch enough junior sports but i could probably imagine in most of the games depending on who coaches the the community sides that you're watching will probably have a large impact on where players are playing so and and also the the social status within that that community game will also have an impact in in what position the kids are playing so so because of that you don't sometimes get a true reflection of where players best positions are because the early maturing kid who has been playing since he's four is the younger sibling of three rugby playing peers might be really confident on the pitch and bullshit and can catch and pass and can run and can tackle because He's had all them challenges at home to survive with his brothers and sisters and and he knows the games. He's been dragged to all these games since he's been a youngster. So he realistically looks like your best potential, say, fly half as an example. But, but actually, it might be the fact that actually he can facilitate the community game a lot better because he's got that social stage where if he says things, players around him listen and and he can he doesn't get challenged by the other players because they see him as a better player now. Physically, he might also be really suited to becoming a centre or a fullback, or actually he could be a flanker. But the club he's at might not need might not have needed a flanker because they might see there's there's players who are limited in say the catch and pass, but are really good at jackling. So, so it's it's a really interesting dynamic, and it's not a case of every player changes position and we pick positions late and we just go we think you're this and this. But actually, we have to be aware of. Again, the, the background of what they've been involved in, where they're from, how much rugby exposure they had, and, and, and also what, what do we think is going to be the best potential position moving forward so that we can give them the best opportunity if they're going to carry on with us. This may sound derogatory, and I don't want it to come across that way to anyone listening, but do you think that's why kind of the standard of your forward players with ball in hand is increasing? Because actually we're not pigeonholing them really early on and they are getting exposure to catching and passing offloads all that type of stuff because i look at like billy venapola for example you actually look at the way that he carries the ball and he if you go back 10 15 years that might not have you know his skill set is is really good you you can look all, all kind of across the globe and actually you've got props and hookers who are very good in contact, enticing defensive in and offloading, all that type of stuff. Do you think that the methodology of just allowing players to play and then pigeonholing them later is kind of upskilling the players in general? So the, the reason why I pause is because up until four or five years ago, rugby union was was not what I was passionate about because... Uh, like you know, I'm, I'm a rugby league lad, so 
and I always found it really interesting. So I, I've grown up in an, an era where I was fortunate enough to to be in an environment where James Graham played. And for those who don't know James Graham, James Graham for me is one of the best rugby players I've seen play rugby league ever. Like he could, he was a front row, a prop forward who could play like a, a, a halfback. He could command games like a halfback, but he could carry and he was tough. And and what I saw was I saw a rugby player with a number on his back. And I, and I think, I think the game rugby union since coming in has been, it's very heavily dominated by set piece at the highest level. There's no getting away from that. Set pieces are crucial to the game and that's that's why it's different to rugby league. Um, but I do think that people are starting to try and develop rugby players first before they develop positional players. And I, I do use the word rugby players because for me, a rugby player is someone who can catch, pass, run, tackle, jackal in our game. Um, and yeah, the, the nuances to the positions that they're playing, and I think you can bolt on later once that they've got that breadth of study to be able to adapt. And that's why it's really important in our process that we look for players who can adapt and who can be coachable and who can be be supported and take on challenge and feedback. And, and, and again, look, there will be players who will just be out and out front rowers because that's naturally what's going to occur. But you've still got to challenge them. You can't you can't just accept that they're going to earn the money being the, the scrummages or the lot of the lifters in the lineup, you've got to still challenge them because they have to be able to play the game as well as be crucial in the position. I think also like you have different types of players within those, don't you? So I look at like, and this is me growing up, Steve Thompson, who, who played for England, World Cup winner. I think, well, the media at least said he wasn't great with the lineouts, but actually the way he used to go through contact is able to get around his ability on the ball was one of the key factors for him maintaining a role within that team so you can look at it and go you know different clubs look for different things if you're trying to be really really expansive you're probably going to want your pack to be able to you have hands on the ball and be able to increase contact if you're going very south africa at the moment which is a massive pack and you're going to play for scrummages and lineouts that might not be one of the top things on your hit list, but it's kind of having a buffer of players to choose from. And and and, you, and you're right in what you say. It, it, it all links into the how you, how your team wants to play and and, and what what they see the game as moving forward. Now, I, I'm still also as much as I say about that, Bradstone. I'm I'm still also very supportive of the fact that, as an example, we said a hooker. But if you are a hooker, you have to be able to throw. There's no that can't be a negotiable. We you know. We, Throwing is a key part of your position in your game. Yes, we'll still be able to work on it, develop it. And if if your if your point of difference is you can move the ball like a back, or you can here's the you know you can hit the line and run through players like a front rower, or a, you can then then they're great, and that that's might what gives you the advantage to getting more more time with people and, and more time in programs. Then 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 great. But also at the same time, if you've got a kid who can just hit everything as a hooker. Well, then we're really confident in our coaching ability that we can then add on other things to them again. But it, it will come back to them being coachable, being adaptable and, and embracing challenge and, and understanding that feedback doesn't mean you're really good or really poor. It's, it's feedback to help you get better full stop. Okay, so moving on to something, something you mentioned earlier. Obviously, you said you kind of transferred from, from league to union. 
Um, I guess the biggest question for you, did you see a cultural difference between the, the two codes? Um, and if you did, kind of what was that? So, yeah, there, there's, there's a difference culturally in terms of, I, I found I found probably the most difficult part was the fact that a lot of the rugby union lads had other lots of other hobbies and interests alongside of the rugby union and and that, that's that, that, that I'm not saying that's a negative thing it was just it was just a shock as such because actually in a rugby league environment a lot of the lads are very much really tough rugby league kids who, who just want to play the one sport now you'll still but yeah I'm not saying that's that's a, a a blanket because I'm definitely seeing a modern change in terms of the players of, of coming through systems and, and, and who are on the circuits of, of community areas. But but the, especially when I got into the schools environment, it was always very apparent that, you know, the schools would have one term of rugby and then they'd have a cricket or a hockey term and lads would very much be involved in that. Whereas, you know, it, in, in the state schools, it would lads would do normally their PE lessons, but then they'd, they'd go home and play their sport, which was usually a rugby league game or football rugby league maximum. So so that, that was one of the, the things that I just found different, not in a not in a bad way. It was just something I had to get my head around and figure out how that worked um, and what that meant for, for development of players. Obviously, research and everything now tells you that the, the more sports that they're involved in and the late specialisation, the, the better that that should allow them to be. Um, and there's, some, there's been some good evidence of that, I would say. Uh, I suppose the, the other the other thing that I found different was the, the involvement of schools and how schools rugby played a really large part. So rugby league, schools rugby is okay. And there's some fantastic rugby schools, but most of your coaching is done via your community club. And then you're, if you're fortunate enough to go into their scholarship programs and their scholarship programs would have contact time of two, three times a week. Whereas within, within our environment, if lads are at, at, at uh, the independent schools and they get that term of rugby, then, they're getting a term's worth of delivery by some, some very good coaches uh, in comparison to their peers who are at state school. And because of some of the regions that we are able to recruit from, they're very football dominated. So the actual, the high schools don't do rugby or if they do, it's very limited. So so already that was creating some slight differences in in what was coming to you and, and, and the abilities that you saw. And I found that was, that was one of the hardest parts for me to then when identifying players and then working with players is understanding just how big the gap and level was within the same age group. If, if one kid had been at an independent school, say, for, for a year and a, and a kid who hasn't. And, and, and again, that that's not a blanket statement. There will be players who who were just as good. Yeah, yeah, just the training age, isn't it? If you look at actually the, the training age of a player, someone who's playing three or four times a week and is getting exposed to high-level coaching, is just going to have a much higher training age, much broader knowledge base of skills and challenges than the, the kid that does it once a week for 12 weeks with a PE teacher who might specialise in hockey or football, but also knows a decent amount about rugby as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, and like you said, you, you, you have to understand them, 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 them variants because, again, it... it it gives you pictures and but it sometimes will provide you with some false positives and, and and some you know some various other things can get thrown into it so it, it made it really interesting for me to understand that whole dynamic um but actually i've i it, it, 
personally, I felt it's benefited me because it's allowed me to understand coaching and player identification a lot more and, and just how much more there is to what we see on a, on a, on a field. So I've, I've really, that's been something I really enjoyed actually in, in, in coming across though. Okay, so looking at um, kind of skill, I guess one, one of the things you, you mentioned with rugby league and I guess from, from the limited, limited exposure I have um, is in terms of the, the way that they are able to kind of embrace contact and then look to offload. It's a big part of getting extra phases or extending phases within the, within, um, the game. And I'd say that that's probably something that traditionally didn't happen too much in union. And it, and I've seen, again, this is from the outside perspective, is coming more and more. Would you agree that it's kind of coming more and more? And then I guess from a skill development point of view, how do you go around teaching kids this? How do you go around? You also, you've been kind of a, a backs coach, backs and skills coach, all that type of stuff. So how do you go about actually trying to make the players more skillful in these types of areas? So there's a couple of things what, what I want to address on that. So the, the first part is is the games themselves are are very similar but so different. So in in a rugby league environment, I can run the ball in and I can get tackled by my opponents. And and if they if they win the collision, they're gonna they're gonna hurt me. They're gonna put me on the ground, and it's gonna be uncomfortable. But as long as I stand up and keep hold of the ball, I play the ball behind me and and we play on and go again. So it doesn't matter if I'm upright, low to the ground. It doesn't matter if they win the collision or I win the collision. I mean, it does in the technical aspects and the possession of the game, but generically. Whereas in a rugby union environment, if I go up to upright and I can't get to the ground, then I lose the ball. If I go in too upright and lose the collision, I'm in a poor position to then like retrieve the ball back from my team so I have to consider then what my body height is and what my angle of trajectory is into the defender and actually then when I am tackled how much movement do I have to produce on the floor to get the ball back so in the game straight away there's there's a there's a slight dynamic in terms of why and when you might offload so so you have to understand that that, that, that bit for me is sometimes what one of the big differences which which means you have to you have to appreciate why the games are so different. In terms of coaching, the if we the example of the offload and the ability to keep the ball alive, um, one of the areas I really try and focus on is the ball grip. Now, I've seen lots and lots of rugby league sessions where, where ball grip and the ability to control the ball with one hand is really crucial. Whereas in a rugby environment, I've not seen the grip on the ball as much. I've seen more just encouragement of, can you go into contact and find a way to get the ball out? Now, I like the idea about being able to control the ball and grip the ball and exchange the ball between hands because that gives you security and a little bit more security in terms of in contact, what you then can and can't do. But then at the same time, it's good to layer on the fact that actually you're going to go into a collision. Are you going to win the collision and go forward and make metres? Are you going to win the collision and then try and move your body in order to then release the ball so you can speed the game or create an offload or get an extra phase? Or are you going to go into collision to then, you know, go to ground, but then have the ability and the dexterity to then place the ball or lift the ball off the ground to somebody who can then speed the game up again? So it comes down to some decision-making. 
giving them the understanding of how to hold the ball, maybe ways to maybe grip the ball in order to then create an offload or a body position so that you can free yourself to then release that. It, it is something we can build into it. Um, so it's a combination, going back to what we said before, it's a combination of doing some some very slow and very short practical designs before then allowing them to go into some real live environments where it's it's a case of solve the problem what's in front of you. And I, I guess what's challenging in that, particularly in, in a union context, is you've got all those decisions in a very short period of time. So obviously in, in a league context, if you know if you're going in quite upright, you might be in a position where you know the person's there. So actually you can start surveying surveying the, the area around you. Whereas in a union context, you might be going in going, okay, is there anyone around me? All of a sudden you get hit and then you're like, I'm in a world of trouble now. I can't twist my body. I'm not going to be able to present this. And it like getting the, the risk wrong means that actually there's quite strong ramifications. Whereas in a, in a league context, you might lose a couple of meters, but you're not going to lose possession of the ball kind of by your own try line. So how do you go around getting players to identify that risk and reward quickly and then identify maybe what's the skill needed at that moment in time? Yeah, so... I like to challenge players with reflective moments. So if we're doing, if we're not doing continuous game-based practice at that time, then I will challenge players with almost like a 10-second window where they can reflect on the the outcome of what's happened and, and the processes that may have occurred with people around them. And they can fire questions to each other. Now, I'm only looking at short questions like, so was my body height too high? Or did I, did you see the ball? Or, you know, did, did you feel my leg drive? Or little questions to fire responses to make them think about what they were doing and challenge that process they went through. Is that in this? Is that in the session? Yeah. So I'll, I will try and challenge players within the session. So again, if, if it's if it's drill or block break, block based random uh, block based practice, then yeah, they'll be trying to encourage ten second window. So you know, if one's working, then rotating round to then come back into that's an opportunity to get that conversation in. And it, I want them short, sharp. Just a quick process-based question, because the outcome is almost evident from the moment that the, the, the activity's ended. You've either you've either won the collision or you've not. If we've got the opportunity with like the academy, we'll then look at actually reflective practice within training. So we'll use uh, the video analysis to then fire up questions, show some video footage, create one-on-one -on -one conversations, group conversations, um, and try and get them to to, to reflect on what's happened, how they've seen the situation and, and, and where that's occurred. If we're talking back down now on the ground and on the, on the, on the, on the floor, yes, we've got limited time to be able to, to make some decisions. So actually we, we try and give them a couple of small identifications to, to give them maybe the nod of whether they're going to win or lose that collision. So what, what would those be? So, so some simple, simpler ones would be things like, are they slow in getting set as a defender? So has the rook speed been too quick? And have they had to, say, travel back a metre or two to get on side? Because straight away, if they're on the back foot, we're probably going to win that collision. If they're set early because the rook's slow, then do we think running a run it straight effectively is going to be really useful or effective? 
or do we need to then change what we were doing or create a new movement pattern to try and create the soft shoulders? If we see players sat on the heels, then we try and encourage sometimes to go forward at the player more because players sat on the heels means they've got no momentum to go forward. It's when their feet come in closer and, and more in a in a split stance that actually the defender's probably going to be in a winning position. So we can try and see if we can identify some of those. The other, the other, the other things you can honestly say is if you're bigger than the kid in front of you, you've probably got a better chance than if the kid in front of you is bigger. Again, it, it's not a science. There, there are small players, and I played against lads who were so so much smaller than me when I was playing in the systems, and they would dunk me all the time because their tackle technique was just much better than what my running technique was at that moment. But but again, you can try and give those those little pointers as well. Um, to try and help them with some ideas or decisions they want to make. But effectively, it's about giving them the opportunity to experience it, reflect on it, and then go and do it again. So when, when you, we're doing this in, in a session context, do you have like, um, obviously you used the four-channel game earlier as a really good example of the type of practice that you would put on. Are there certain practices you'll do to try and encompass this? Like if I look at him, for example, in... Um, in, in, in a, again, in a football context, just easier for me. If I'm looking at crossing and finishing from wide areas, I might put a points emphasis on if you can cross uh, the ball from the wider area and score with a first-time pass, that's worth three goals, for example. Is there a similar kind of system or is there similar techniques you use to really focus in on those type of interactions for the players? Yeah, so, the, the, I mean, I, I say it's commonly known as Fiji Touch. It is... This is probably where a lot of people will send you messages to say I, I give the wrong name, um, but but effectively the the game is where you know first, first point of contact, um, carry on. You can carry on running. Um, if you the same person's being touched by a second defender, then it's a turnover. So then obviously it's encouraging players to be closer to the man for support or for for tip on passes and things like that. Um, so that that Fiji touch game kind of encourages that, and then it makes the decision about do I just run at the line and try and break that one v one tackle, or if there's three defenders in front of me, I've got to be really smart in how I use the ball or move it. Once I've made a break, a player's in support, so I can pass the ball to them or offload to them, and that tends to come in a touch variation of the game. Um, I I've played games before where. And you can work in three threes, five v five. So you know whatever numbers you want it to be. But effectively, it's a one phase game. So within the one phase game, the idea is it's it's not long in distance. So your width of your pitch or your length of your pitch, sorry, is, it can can only be it only has to be like 15, 20 meters because we're not looking at maximum running distance. But the idea is that it's only a one phase game. So the defenders know straight away if, if they can kill your attack and, and take you to ground. There's no there's no second phase. You get the points. But as attackers, you know, you've got to keep the ball alive. You've got to move it. You've got to, if they then get you in the tackle, you've got to figure a way out to get the ball out. It becomes chaotic, but with chaos becomes learning moments. And, and then from those moments, we can then really home in on what was successful for us and what maybe, what maybe clouded our judgment. Yeah, no, so that, that makes complete sense. I guess looking at it from a, um, from a challenging point of view for you guys is there's limited amount of, I guess, full on contact you can have with the players. So in terms of like getting them in actually real life drill situations where they are going a hundred percent, I'd imagine during the week, that's very limited on the amount of time you can do that. So it's trying to replicate those types of scenarios in a, 
lesser contact way, if you like, in preparing the players for going, well, this is what you might experience when you're then getting mashed at a weekend. Yeah, there's times where there's times where you can you can you can get away with it because you you get them right in the middle of the week. So we, we, we'll only see these lads once a week if we're talking DPP. Um, and sometimes you'll see them once every two weeks. So actually, what we've got to do is we've got to we've got to plant a seed about a skill, which makes them want to go and and experiment and figure out more and learn a little bit more. And then, and the challenge then is for them to go into their environment and and challenge that skill and take that skill and see what they can do with it. Because when they come back to us in the two weeks' time, we don't want to then we don't want to be back at square one and have to kind of go back over. We want to see then what they've tried to implement in their own game, and then where can we then pitch the next part of their learning. So, again, the battle will come because when they go back into the community club. Community clubs will need want to play certain ways because they've got a game at the weekend where you know they'll they'll want to win that match or not lose that match depending on the level they're at, um, and that sometimes stifles the lads' ability. But but to be fair, most of the coaches in in the community game in our regions are superb at, at at supporting players in terms of allowing them to a bit of guided discovery. Bear in mind, it's been bolted on with some information from us first. So do you include the coaches within that process to say, I hate to keep going to fly half, but it's a really easy one because they get so much of the ball. But say, for example, you've got a fly half, you're really trying to encourage them to attack the line and, you know, pass late on so we can get line breaks. Would you communicate that to the coaches so that they understand if they get a couple that are, you know, intercepted during during the weekend's games and stuff, it's because they're actually trying to facilitate the area you're working with them on and to say, like, kind of encourage them to keep doing it for positive outcomes in the long term? So not not necessarily directly with the coaches. What we'll tend to do is is, is we'll have them conversation with the players and and we try and encourage the players to use their social support network to, to help develop them. So, so again, we try and encourage the players to go back into the club and, and maybe share the information with coaches and, and other players who are not in our system. And and try and try and understand that the people around them are there to help develop them, not necessarily to stifle what they do. So, so we do try and encourage the players to go and have them conversations. And again, that that's really tough. Look, we're not saying it's a perfect system because at fourteen, fifteen, for a kid to go up to his coach, which is potentially his best mate's dad, or not his best mate's dad in the other situation, and tell him that somebody at Leicester Tigers has said they'd like me to try and work on this. This is what they want me to see. That that's quite a daunting prospect. That that you know that let's let's not say it isn't. I suppose that the some of the interesting things is the players who can do that. And what does that say about them players and then players and, and, and their development and actually what does it say about the players who can't? It doesn't mean that they're not necessarily good players. It just means that they need help on that social support network inside because we, we we know when we move up in the systems these lads might not have you know myself coaching and it might be that Steve Borthwick comes and takes the academy session well you've then got to be able to interact with someone like Steve Borthwick because because that's good person you're coaching so it's just small ways to try and encourage steps what might appear in the future talking to people you don't normally talk to or asking for help or support which which can be daunting but 
we're trying to encourage that from. Do you, do you think that that then helps you create more, I guess, sociable groups, but also better leaders down the line? Because if they are more self-reflective, self-aware, and are willing to almost ask for that help, and that's essentially what it is, is saying, listen, this is what I need help with. Can you help me? When they then get to, if they've been doing that since 14, once they start getting to 17, 18, 19, 20, that's a, you know, that's, a kind of a common staple of their personality is that they want to come and ask for help. They're going to come and say to their teammates, this is what I need from you today. Do you think that produces like leaders in the long term from your experience? I don't know if it, if the word is leaders, I, d I don't know if it produces leaders. What it, what it produces is players who have the ability to look after themselves better and, and, and manage themselves in, in an effective way. So whether, whether some of them become the leaders of the groups, there's a chance that could be the case. But, but what it does mean is that lads can, you know, they can be in the academy, they can be, say, gone from being selected every week in their community team to not being selected for two academy matches and going, well, I need to know why and I need, I need, to, I need to do something about this. I'm going to go and speak to the coach. Like how can I how can I get into your team? How can I work better? Or what do I need to be more focused on? Or where, where do you see my weaknesses at the moment? What what are my limitations? All of a sudden, that player has gained so much more by having that ability to go and have that conversation. Or you know, and and, and this is where it gets to you know you, you haven't been selected, so I want them I want them to feel comfortable in going having conversations. So if they do go and talk to the teacher at school and go like, it's a bit crap. I've not been picked again. I'm really struggling at the moment for the teacher to go, well, let's have a conversation. Let's get their emotions out of you. Or, you know, uh, again, it's a, it's a tougher end example, but the under 15 or 16 who's not been selected, we want them to to be able to go back to mum and dad and go, well, that was crap. I really didn't like that. For them to, to express what they're feeling and, and talk to people. Like, and whether, whether they develop into leaders I don't know, but if we can develop players to be able to be more open and talking and and, and breaking barriers behind, I, sh I shouldn't talk to that coach because it's somebody or I find it difficult telling him that I've been asked to do this bit at the moment, then actually I think that would just make them better better for themselves in, in the long run. No, I think that's really good. Is that something that, re rewinding back to start this conversation, you meant, mentioned about being a school teacher. Would you try and integrate that if you were to ever go back into teaching of that openness? I, no? <laughs> no, no, I'm shaking my head at the thought of going back into teaching. No, never. Um, oh, yeah, look, ma massively. Um, the the whole the whole background to mental health is is, is quite personal and massive for me, um, and and to to try and be open with people and, and be as honest as you can, I think is really key. I think, I think if, if you're open and you're honest, you, you, your messages you give are always understood and, and, and people understand where you're coming from and, and, and recognize why you're giving them that, that information. And it comes back again to being, you know, no, no, no shocks because, because you're giving them as much as they can, and as much as they can handle and need at the time. And, and yeah, I think if if I was to be back in the school environment, it'd be it'd be very much the same. It would be understanding and explaining to pupils of, you know, at the moment this is where your GCSE grades are predicted. 
but this is what's potentially stopping you from getting this grade or actually your behaviour at the moment is impacting pupils X, Y and Z or classes one, two and three and actually the way you hold yourself around school is, is portraying you in this light and I'm sure, you know, it, I'd very much try and have those conversations with people because I just think it, it, it's good to be be that person and support and help them. I wouldn't do it just to make a point. I'd do it to support them. That's the difference. I try and be honest as well. I, think, yeah. I guess that's important for the kids. You know, if they, if they know you're going to be honest with them, if they like it or not, they can go, I trust him. He's going to tell me what he thinks. He's going to tell me tell me what, what, what the situation is at the moment. Um, in terms of, obviously, we, we've mentioned a lot around skills there. Um, and in terms of practice design um, to... we. Uh, Sorry, we've mentioned a lot about skills there and we've mentioned a lot around practice design to look at one specific skill. When you're doing like a game prep type session or something like that, how do you go around challenging the players to incorporate all the different things that they've learned and make it more of a decision-based session? So, you know, we're looking at it maybe being the last five minutes of game, we need to try to win the game how are we going to do this? What type of skills are you going to lean on? How do you go around framing that for the boys? Uh, so, so we'll create scenario-based practices as well. Within, so even within, even within our games, we'll sometimes create scenario-based practices. So we'll, we'll stick time constraints onto the game or like you say, create the scenario where you're winning or losing, or there's a, there's a need for something to happen. Um, and especially within the DPP, the, the, like I said, the volunteer coaches are brilliant. They, they do. They come up with some really good ideas. When we get into the academy, what we try to do is we try and lean a little bit more onto who would be our leaders in, in areas of the field and, and get them to come up with the scenarios or the situations they want to go through or practice or or try and rehearse and things like that. So so we'll try and encourage lads to be more have more ownership of what that is and what that looks like. And then... You know, you'll you'll have conversations prior to the the sessions where you might try and just scaffold some of the thoughts, but also you'll you'll let them just go free as well, and and then have the reflective conversations in the week after. So within the academy, there's definitely a a, a number of conversations that will take place prior and after training sessions where we'll reflect on what we were looking at. Did we get the best out of how it was? Did we create environments where that was put under stress or duress or? Uh, and, and get them to try and solve as many problems as, we, as they can, either they can come up with or we give them. And I'm guessing, you know, you're doing all of this work so that when they start getting into the under-18s age group into the academy setup, and they're playing, you know, other academy teams, Sales, Newcastle, Saracens, actually they've got experience of the skill set required for that environment. So be it a wet and windy day and actually we're just going to have to play play for yardage and you know we're going to play for our pack or whether it's a really expansive day and we, we can see that they're maybe they're not the great when we're causing a bit of chaos they've got the toolkit to be able to exploit whatever scenario presents itself yeah and and, and we're not we're not overly explicit in terms of of exactly what they have to do and and from an early age so so because of that Every game is still a really good learning opportunity for them. It's not a, it's not a test. The game's not a test for us. It's it's almost like an assessment if we went back to some sort of schooling thing. And it's like at the end of the test, you either pass or fail. Whereas in an assessment, we just 
monitor and see where we're at and then carry on working to see if we can get better. And, and our, our game's very much like that. Like, we'll have ideas of how we want to play. And we'll have some, we'll, we'll do some video analysis of our opponents and we'll do some game review and, and we'll discuss where we think we're going to be strong and play to our strengths and identify our opponents' weaknesses. But actually, there'll be moments in the games that we could never plan for or scenarios will happen that, that actually we couldn't replicate or create or, you know, and, and, and because of that, the lads have got to learn as they go along as well. And, and we won't necessarily run messages on the pitch which tell them what to do or what to identify. We'll, we'll leave them. We'll let them go and do it. And if if we don't get the result, and we don't get the result, but if, if, if we then get to the back end of the season and a similar scenario occurs and we get a better outcome, we know that learning has, has taken place and our players have learned from the past experiences. Yeah, and does it does it make it more interesting for your games program? Because I imagine if everyone's got a similar model, like you could play, you know, your Northampton one week, and they might be, you know, smashing it long, turning, chasing, but then the following week they're chucking it around. So actually, for for your guys, it's a really, you know, they have to play what's ahead of them, not what they're expecting. If you if you know what I mean? Yeah, massively. And then look, there's a couple of academies who. Who well, there's a large majority of academies who play very, very differently. There's only probably a handful who have some very, very similar traits. But there are some. There, I mean, there are some academies who play such different rugby that that you've the lads have to be adaptable and have to understand what they're going up in front of, and that's that's ideal for their development because when they get into the highest level of the game where they want to be, they have to be able to play one week in a particular way. And maybe replicate that for twelve matches. Find you then get called into a rep team, or doesn't happen as much in rugby. But your you, your head coach leaves, and a new coach comes in with a completely different playing style, or you know, or you you get sent on loan because actually you're not ready to play in that level, and if you can't go and play at your loan club and adapt to what they do, then are you going to get pulled back into your senior club? So, so yeah, it, it's brilliant that it gives them such variety. Um, and it, it's really beneficial for them, in my opinion, that they get to experience so many different opportunities. Perfect. So, um, listen, last question for me, and it might be a challenging one, but who's the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Um, oh, great question. Best, best player I played with... Um, is probably a guy called James Roby, who is still playing right now. Um, and I only played with him as he was coming through the academy at Saints. He went into the first team and way, way ahead of like schedule probably. But he was the fittest bloke on the field. He was the toughest bloke I've, I, I've seen in terms of not big in stature, but he, he wraps up 50 tackles a game. He'll hit the ball to the base of the rook and he'd be gone. You know, you'd have to be on his back foot just to stay in contact with him. He would change the point of the game within seconds. He was phenomenal. And there's some very good players who've been in the environments before, but he was he was something else. In terms of coaches, there's two and they're at two ends of the spectrum. So I mentioned him already. So I and I, I'll be honest. I sent I sent this coach a message because I had to I had to send him a message because I needed to clear my own conscience that I didn't appreciate what he did when he did it and how he did it. And now that I've become a coach and I've gone through some stuff, I realise 
everything that he did was in the best interest of me and I just didn't accept it because I was a, a moody young kid who thought I was better than I was. And that, that guy is Sean Wayne. And actually, for what he tried to do and help me, actually was really impressive. And what he's got on to do as a coach is, is second to none. Uh, but the second one is a, is a bloke called Tom Harrison. Um, I've only known Tom five years. We both met at Loughborough College. So when I started the Rugby League programme, he started the Rugby Union programme. Um, and I, I have to take my heart off to him. He, he's my sounding board for, for practically everything. And he's, one of the, he's probably the hardest working coach I've ever met. Um, really diligent in what he does. Asks lots and lots of questions. Annoys me at times because he's definitely a scrum coach. Or well, he'll hate me saying that. He's a forwards coach. And he always has an opinion on what I could do better as a backs coach. And sometimes you're like, you know, <laughs> but actually he's, he's challenging me and making me a better coach as I, and, and challenging me to be better. And, and look, the evidence of how good a coach he is, 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 is only at the forefront as he, he's just been, he's now in the first team coaching staff at Leicester Tigers at, at 30. I, he, I think he'll go a long way as a coach. He's a, he's a very, very good coach. Good bloke as well, obviously. So Perfect. Answer, Listen, two really, really good, well, three really, really good answers and really appreciate your time. Loads of interesting stuff there and uh, hopefully we can catch up again soon. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. It's been, been great fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.